With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 111th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners everywhere in the world. I really sincerely appreciate you in all of the now, let's see, 78 plus countries where you are located. Thank you for sending all your messages and all your questions. Please keep them coming. My May Privacy Professor Tips message was published on May 1st. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. They are free, just as they've always been since 2005. So today, back by popular demand and many requests, following my February episode just a few months ago, I'm going to be answering a wide range of questions that I've received from my listeners and also from my Privacy Professor Tips readers in recent months. And thank you to all of you who, after my February episode, just sent me such great uh, messages and feedback. I sincerely appreciate it. So let's just dive into the questions. Now, several of you asked me what happened to those men who were arrested here where I'm located in Des Moines, Iowa. They were two owners of different bars and they were stalking a woman reportedly by using a digital tracking device. What is happening with them? Are they in jail? Well, great question. I'm glad you're asking because I have fresh news about those stalkers and they both pleaded guilty. So they admitted that they were stalkers. Truly, this, uh, this was such an interesting, it continues to be an interesting case. And some of the comments that those two men made during this case really are kind of unbelievable, along with quite frankly, in my view, the penalties or lack thereof that resulted. Now, if you're curious, this is a follow-up to that February show as well, where uh, in episode eight of this show, um, to catch up on details, uh, 
these two men who are owners of the bars were accused of stalking a woman by placing one of those digital trackers on her car. So what has happened now at this point on Monday, May 1st, just 2023. So, you know, just a day or two ago, two Des Moines bar owners, they admitted to hiding at least one GPS device to track a woman and they hit it on her car. Steve McFadden, who owns the Grumpy Goat Restaurants and Tipsy Crow Tavern here in the Des Moines, Iowa area, hid a GPS device on the stocked woman's car. Edwin Allen, who owns Zora Rooftop Bar, which is now for sale, reportedly in large part, a result of all the stocking activities, also watched, digitally watched, the same stocking victim. And get this, he was doing it as a favor for his buddy McFadden while McFadden was out of state. McFadden pleaded guilty to using the GPS device, and he pleaded guilty to harassment. In court, he is reported to have said that he regrets putting the tracking device on the woman's car. His, he stalked his victim by following where she was at throughout town and then, you know, would sometimes uh, go there or, or watch from afar, if you will. So does he regret the tracking or does he regret getting caught? <laughs> from other comments he made to reporters and in court, I think it could be the latter, the fact that he actually got caught. So what happened to them with regard to a sentence since they both pleaded guilty? McFadden received a one-year suspended, suspended sentence of a year in jail on a charge pleaded down from stalking to instead the unauthorized use and placement of a GPS tracking device, which really isn't that what stocking is anyway. But anyway, so that's, that's what it was reduced down to. Plus, he had originally been given 30 days for a third-degree harassment charge. But again, that was all suspended after pleading guilty. McFadden also received one year of probation. He was also ordered to attend a one-on-one seven-week class, the name of which is, quote, intentional living, end quote, offered by the Iowa Department of Corrections. McFadden also has a five-year no-contact order with his victim, and McFadden faces up to 180 days in jail if he violates the terms of his one-year probation. Now, after sentencing, McFadden's attorney told KCCI, and KCCI is one of our local TV stations here in Des Moines, he told that uh, the, the reporter that McFadden is, quote, accepting responsibility for what he has done, and he's going to move on and start a fresh life. 
I think his problem is women, end quote. So it was very interesting to see the lawyer's attitude because this was filmed. And the end of that quote where he said, quote, I think his problem is women, end quote. It, I don't know. It seemed like he was blaming the stalking victim just in the manner in which he said it. Now, a few hours later, Alan, the guy, the buddy that filled in to stalk the targeted woman, the victim, while McFadden was out of town, and in some other news outlets, reportedly he was out of state. Anyway, Alan pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct, disorderly conduct to surveil a person and keep track of her every move and location and then report it to his buddy while his buddy McFadden was out of town. Alan, for his plea deal, also agreed to pay a $500 fine and also has a five-year no-contact order for the woman, the stalking victim, but no probation and no requirement to take classes from the Iowa Department of Corrections. Here's what I found very interesting. KCCI, again, the TV station, reported that after sentencing, Allen's attorney said his client essentially was, quote, convicted of folding his arms and looking in the direction of another person, end quote. I found that that comparison with following wherever a person was located while they're driving through town, I found that really interesting. So stalking a person and monitoring everywhere that person goes was the same as just looking in the direction of another person as though, you know, they were across the room or something. And then get this, Alan, the guy that was doing the stalking on behalf of his friend McFadden, he told the KCCI reporter that he plans to appeal his sentencing. He's planning to appeal having to pay $500 and, you know, be on probation Um, he's going to appeal that. These types of incidents of stalking using digital trackers are significantly increasing. And those of you who have been listening to my show, you know, you've heard uh, like from Adam Dodge, the um, lawyer out of California who specializes in stalking and uh, digital tracking of people to hunt them down. And um, as they're stalking them, Uh, listen to that episode and he'll give you many examples. But anyway, you know, these types of incidents are increasing and virtually nothing is being done to penalize the stalkers, the criminals who are using these really inexpensive tracking devices to digitally follow their victims' locations. So also consider this. There are so many digital trackers available. And because they're inexpensive, there are literally tens of millions of them out there. You know, there's Apple AirTag. There's Samsung Galaxy SmartTag and and 
tile tile pro and all sorts of other types of tile trackers uh, there's newer ones, Chipolo One and, and Cube Shadow, along with other cube trackers. I heard of one, GeoBit Smart Tag and, and Ufi Air Tag, and also, of course, Google Air Tag, just to name a few. Most of these do not have the capabilities to address this growing problem of having the tracking devices used to stalk people. So that's another huge problem, a huge privacy and safety problem. Late in 2022, Apple released a firmware update enabling a feature to their AirTag tracker. And the feature or the capability was to locate an unknown AirTag. So, in other words, you can use this update to detect if there's a a tag in the vicinity moving along with you. And it was marketed and is still marketed as an anti-stalking capability. With the AirTag itself programmed to make a noise, so then... You can physically find it also, which I thought that was really interesting. Actually, that's a, a pretty good benefit to to actually link, have in sync these two different things, uh, the firmware and also the air tags, so that a noise would be made if one that is not paired with, you know, the firmware is identified and then making a noise. Reportedly, you need to be running at least iOS 16.2 to be able to use these new capabilities. Now, Google is also reportedly re- uh, releasing news soon, like this month in May of 2023, about an upgrade to their tracker, perhaps anti-stalking, anti-tracking detection capabilities. That would be great. However, now consider this going in completely the opposite direction. In February of this year, Tile launched a new capability being called a security measure that will, as Tile promises, render its tracking devices effectively invisible to anyone who is the person or persons using the trackers. So with this new capability, the only person who would know where their device is at all times is theoretically the tile owner, the the person that put it on there. So in other words, with uh, McFadden and Allen, if they were using this type of tracker and they put it on their stalking victim's car and that stalking victim had some sort of tools, and I'll tell you about some of them here in just a few moments, but if if that person was using tools to identify if there were trackers in the area, supposedly this uh, new capability would make it so that it would not be able to even be identified, which is really kind of scary. So two very different tactics being uh, taken by uh, the different trackers. So as I mentioned, there are tools 
that you can use to identify when Bluetooth and RFID and other types of wireless transmissions are occurring in your vicinity. Portable wireless tracker detector wands, bug detector devices. There's a lot of them available out there. If you just do an online search, uh, you'll find a whole bunch of them. And the ones that actually work pretty well and consistently are usually in the U.S. $50 to $500 range. However, I've seen some advertised at discount stores for as low as $20. I'm not sure how well those work, though. It seems really inexpensive. Um, it might be kind of a fun experiment to try it out, though. Now, there are also tracker detectors that are much more complex that are also available. They go all the way up to law enforcement grade bug detector systems costing tens of thousands of U.S. dollars. And they have some really elaborate uh, tracking monitors and so on with images and and, uh, graphics that are really pretty mind-blowing. Bug detector apps these tag detector apps i you know to make you realize that those are about the the tracking tags they are also becoming available but i've not read any reviews of those that are positive uh so you know at this point in time i think i'd stick with the hardware to try to find them another problem with digital trackers used for stalking is with the laws or the lack of laws against stocking with these digital devices. Or perhaps more of a problem, the non-application of the existing laws to penalize the criminals, the stalkers, who violate the laws. So to repeat, the two men here in Des Moines received no prison time for actively and purposefully over a significant period of time planting tracking devices on the stalking victim's car. And they ended up each getting only a $500 fine. Under Iowa law, the first offense of stalking is an aggravated misdemeanor that is punishable by up to two years in prison and a fine of 500 to 5000 US dollars. These admitted guilty stalkers, McFadden and Allen, they likely got off with no prison time and the minimum penalty because they pleaded guilty. They admitted their guilt. But now Allen, the buddy who joined in on the original stalkers' activities, well, being the good friend he is, Now, he plans to appeal his very light sentence. Something else to consider. In Iowa, stalking with a violation of a no-contact order, stalking with a dangerous weapon, or stalking a minor is considered a Class D felony, which is punishable by up to five years in prison and a fine of up to $7,500. A third offense or higher is considered a Class C felony, punishable by up to 10 years in prison and up to $10,000 fine. 
So if McFadden and Allen decide to violate their probation, they could possibly be sent to jail after all and find more. And I'll let you know on this show if I hear of any developments as time goes on. Reportedly, McFadden was able to avoid federal stocking penalties because there are are federal laws against stocking as well. But McFadden was able to avoid those federal stocking penalties because, and I bet some of you know what I'm going to say here (laughs) next, how he avoided it. He did not do his stocking while he was out of state. He had his buddy, Alan, fill in for him. Alan, who's right here locally. And then he just asked Alan to let him know where her whereabouts were while he was not in the area. So they were stocking buddies, right? Is that going to become a thing now? Nothing says I love you, buddy, like uh, helping your buddy stock his targeted victim, I guess. What are the laws on stocking in other states and federal laws? And what are the laws in other countries? Well, I've been doing some research and I've been chatting with some lawyers about this. And I'm going to dedicate this as a topic for an entire upcoming episode. It's it's just so disturbing in so many ways how stocking is becoming, you know, an even bigger problem than it ever has been. And it's through using a wide variety of technologies, but probably the most common ways through these tracking tags. Let me know your thoughts on this and if you have any questions you're curious about having answered. Next question. Okay, here's another good one. Ivy wrote in and said, the FBI and FCC recently warned those free USB charging stations in public spaces, such as airports and hotels and hospitals and so on, can have devices hidden within them to steal data, spread malware, and so on. And she said, I recall, Rebecca, that you discussed this on a previous episode, didn't you? Well, Ivy, yes. I mean, you have a great memory. In 2018, I covered this at a high level in episode 39 of my radio podcast show. And actually, I started covering this at a few on-site security and privacy corporate training courses way back in 2010 when I first became aware of what was then a very new and emerging threat from a business friend, an electrical engineer, who I think may have actually invented what was the very first juice jack blocker, or you might know it better as being called a data blocker for USB ports. So I'm going to give a quick overview of the problem, and then we can get into Uh, more details after uh, we have a a break that's coming up here. But in these USB chargers that you see, there's tiny little skimmers that can be put within those ports, and they will then copy all of the data and software from the devices that are charging there through them. Those skimmers can also be used to plant ransomware. They can be used to plant keystroke loggers, and and other types of malware. 
these skimmers are really, really hard for you to see inside those USB ports. And in most cases, they're impossible to see. You know, it's really, when people think of skimmers, they think of the credit card skimmers on gas pumps and credit card payment processors. And with those, you can usually see those skimmers if you look closely and you, you know, you grab hold of the, the, where the card slides through and you can jiggle it a little bit and you can tell if it's loose and maybe something that's been added on. However, that's not the case with these tiny little skimmers that go into the inside of those charging ports. And the cords that are now so commonly found at charging stations have in some places been replaced by a criminal who replaced them with a cable that's not just an electric charge only cable. And by replacing those cables, he's the the crooks, he or she, is replacing it with cables that also can do data transmission through the cables, not just electric charges. So then you add to this physical risk. Some of those cords that are being replaced aren't even used to take data or plant malware, but instead they're, they're constructed, they're engineered to ruin your device that you want to have charged by delivering a destructive voltage level. So I'm really glad the FBI and the FCC are warning about these risks with public public charging stations and USB ports. And I think I'm going to stop it right here because after the break, I want to talk about ways that you can actually, you know, address this situation and protect yourself while you're out and about uh, and some of the options that you can use for that then. But right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please hang on and listen to the, the sponsors and we will be right back after these important messages. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. 
The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. Today, I'm answering a wide range of listener and reader questions. So before the break, I had started talking about what the FBI and the FCC have recently been warning about risks with public charging stations in USB ports. So what they had recommended was carrying your own charger and also your own cords, USB cords, and using an electrical outlet instead. And that is one option. That is one good option to have. There is another way to mitigate this risk without needing to use a portable changing device, which may not have enough charge left on it to begin with, or it may itself need charging. And I've, I do have those types of portable charging devices, and I've used them while I've been traveling uh, in, in various places and also the cords, but, you know, those tend to be a little clunky and they do take up some space and they're a little bit of weight there, depending on how much other stuff you're carrying. So I also recommend using what I previously mentioned before the break, what I called was a juice jack blocker, or it's also called a data blocker. But this is a a small and really inexpensive device that is very effective in stopping data from being stolen, you know, from being taken out of your phone while you're you're, uh, charging it, and also prevents malware from being loaded. What it's really doing is it is it is blocking the data transmission interfaces and only allowing the electricity to be uh, transmitted with your phone in order to charge your battery. So that's why it's called a juice jack blocker, like an electric juice, right? So those I like, and they're so little, um, not nearly as bulky as hauling around the portable chargers and electric uh, or extra cables and so on. Although you might want to put them in your, uh, in a, like a locked box inside of your, your luggage. But I've gotten USB juice jack data blockers 
I get them for two for eleven dollars and ninety nine cents uh, online, and they're small. They're easy to fit, you know, in your shirt or pants pocket without any bulkiness at all. So if you don't have some of those, I would, and you don't want to get, you know, the the portable charging items, which again, those can be pretty small, but they aren't nearly as small as the USB juice jack blockers. I suggest you carry those with you whenever you're out and don't want to lose power on your laptop, tablet, phone, whatever. At the very least, make sure you're using charging ports that are non-data USB-A power-only ports or cords power only non-data cords. And you might think, how can I tell if it's a USB-A? Well, you should, if you look closely and you might need to use your phone to, <laughs> to zoom in to see, but a lot of times you should be able to see USB hyphen A on those charging ports. Okay, next question. Here's a question. Actually, this is a question that was sent in by four different readers of my monthly Privacy Professor Tips publication. And it's interesting. I find it interesting. And I've not seen it covered in a lot of other podcasts or radio shows. So I'm going to discuss it today. So as asked by one of those four readers, Pat, Pat asks, quote, regarding your information about check washing, a few tips issues back. Thank you. Check washing actually happened to my family member. I showed him your article and answer, and he is now changing how he pays with paper checks. Are there any more tips you have related to this while we are changing our ways with how we use our paper checks? End quote. Well, first of all, I'm so happy that you found the four of you sending in the, you know, your feedback and also any of the rest of you that read my tips and and saw that. It was in my December 2022 Privacy Professor tips. So thank you for letting me know that. But oddly enough, this is an increasingly uh, more common type of crime. Police reports worldwide, this isn't just in the U.S., Worldwide, check-washing crimes are increasing in frequency. The Better Business Bureau reports that check-washing in the U.S. alone results in $815 million of annual losses to individuals, businesses, and financial institutions each year. It really demonstrates that while new cyber crimes emerge often involving new technologies, long existing crimes will continue to be committed. And consider this, as people become less familiar with using old-fashioned paper checks, and I know there's a lot of you maybe listening because I know I have a lot of, of students in high school and college who listen to my show regularly. Some of you might not have even written a paper check before, or maybe the first time you write it, you might not know really what to do, but keep this in mind so you don't do something that could put your finances, all your money in your bank at risk. Criminals are seeing an opportunity because of this lack of awareness of how to securely use paper checks 
criminals are seeing an opportunity to use check washing even more. So as a reminder, check washing erases payee names and dollar amounts from the checks. It erases anything written on the check. It's accomplished by using a chemical solution such as acetone, which is the active ingredient in in nail polish remover and in paint thinner. The crooks use this, soak the checks in that, then they let them dry out, and then the check is clean, and then they rewrite the check to steal money from the victim. What that doesn't remove from the check, some of you may be thinking, well, doesn't that remove what's printed on the checks? No, that it's a different type of ink that checks are, are printed with. Um, it's not like ink pen ink. So in addition to the information that we provided in our December 2022 issue of the tips, here are some additional actions that you and your family, friends, and coworkers can take to help prevent becoming victims of check washing. So first, use a blue or black gel pen to write on your checks. Gel pens often use ink that is harder to wash off. And in fact, some gel pens, such as Uniball pens with super ink, uh, they even claim their ink protects against fraud. Second, take envelopes containing checks to the post office to mail. You're going to minimize the likelihood that a thief will uh, will steal your check by putting it into the mail at the post office itself rather than mailing it from your home. In some geographic locations, drop off the mail just before the last daily pickup at your post office. And in some other geographic areas, it's even best to avoid using those blue government-issued mailboxes like here in the the U.S. that are publicly available throughout most urban areas because there have been just a few instances where those have been compromised. So when mailing a check also from your home, if any of you know that your mail delivery person will check inside the mailbox anyway, don't raise the flag on your mailbox or clip your mail to the outside of the mailbox. Of course, thieves keep an eye out for those types of things. Next, collect the mail from your mailbox daily. It blows my mind how many people don't. Who leaves their mail out in the mailbox? I, you know, that's something I've got to get my mail as soon as possible. Never leave your mail in your mailbox for an extended period of time. You never know when a thief will try to steal your mail. So it's best to check your mailbox frequently. You can also, and oh, this is something I love to do. You can sign up for informed delivery from the U.S. Postal Service, the USPS, and you will get an email with images of the letter size mail that you're going to receive each day, and it also indicates if you will be getting packages. I use this, and I really like it. It's been very helpful for me to identify when I did not get a piece of mail that was shown in that email And, uh, you know, in the the couple of instances where that happened, I went over to my neighbor and, yep, it was mistakenly delivered to them. Thank goodness it wasn't taken. I don't think it was anything worthwhile anyway uh, to speak of, but it's just very helpful to keep track of 
knowing what you should be expecting to get and then helping identify if you don't get what they say they sent to you. Um, I'm wondering, too, I have a lot of folks in other countries. Is this service offered in other countries? You know, international readers, please send me an email. Let me know. Also, when you are going to be away from your home for, you know, more than a, a day or two, ask the U.S. Postal Service to establish a mail hold. You can request a USPS mail hold and the the post office will hold your mail for up to 30 days. I'm wondering too, is this offered in other countries and international readers? Please let me know. Of course, if you have a trusted friend or neighbor, uh, you can count on to pick up your mail each day while you're away. Wait, that's another option. Frequently review your checking account. Look at the documentation and amount for every check. Notice unusual or unexpected withdrawals or an amount for a check number not in sync with the check you wrote and recorded. And also, this is important. I wonder how many of you do this. Monitor your online, excuse me, your online images of checks you wrote that were cashed. Look for signs that they have been altered. Most banks will show you those images. So start looking at those just to see what they look like. They usually show you both the front and the back of your check. Also look for checks that haven't cleared and check for past due notices. Another thing you can do, consider going paperless. One of the best ways to avoid check washing fraud is to stop using paper checks. So you can transition to paying bills using online sites. But first, make sure that they demonstrate that they use strong security controls. Also, you can send money transfers and ACH payments through your bank. You can use electronic bill pay and transfers. Many banks and credit unions offer free online bill pay services. More and more folks are using peer-to-peer payment apps, which might be a good option when you're sending money to friends or family. But first check to ensure that the app is legitimate and also that it uses strong security safeguards like encrypting all the transmissions and also data and storage. And also make sure it protects your privacy and your data. Check their website privacy and security notices to see what those say. Another thing then, shred any old checks still in your possession. If thieves get their hands on blank check stock, you are handing your money over to them. Even if those accounts are no longer open, forged checks will create a hassle for you to resolve. It will. It'll just eat up a lot of your time to to clear everything up. And then finally, um, share your new check washing knowledge. Warn your family members and friends who regularly send checks about the dangers of mail theft and steps that they can take to avoid check washing fraud. If you're teaching folks how to use these paper checks who have never used them before. And, you know, I think more of that needs to be done. So people just, you know, out of the blue have to write a check and not really know where to start. 
um, let them know how to do it securely. And so they won't be victims of this check washing fraud that's increasing. Next question. Okay, here's a question I answered in my January tips publication. I think listeners are going to find it really interesting. A reader asked, I received a pretty smart necklace for Hanukkah. It was from Invisaware. If the button on the charm is pushed twice, texts will immediately be sent up to five friends and family members to let them know that I need help. And it will include my GPS location. There is also an option to contact 911. And those of you in other countries, 911 is like the emergency help call. So this all sounds good, right? Well, but based on what you, and this is still the the person writing me this message, based on what you've been reporting all this these years, it sounds like it could be extremely privacy invasive. What tips do you have for me? So thank you for this question. I love it because there's so many new types of smart, you know, Internet of Things types of jewelry out there and other devices. And I looked at this particular one and it it is a nice looking necklace and it is a thoughtful gift. And I am absolutely a proponent of products that help to improve our safety. However, they also need to do so without, um, you know, requiring the use of our personal information for other purposes. And the devices need to be secure to prevent unauthorized and unapproved access to and sharing of the data of those using the devices and also the data from others nearby who may also have smart devices because you never can tell when there's an app being lo- that's loaded on a nearby smartphone or other type of IoT device that might be collecting um, the data that's from other nearby devices. Many types of smart Internet of Things wirelessly connected jewelry are out there, and it's meant to provide safety alerts, but it has to be privacy-friendly and cyber-secure. So they're all very different. There's no blanket answer about whether or not they are or they aren't safe to use, privacy-protecting. When discussing this question with my communications team, you know, some of them actually said, well, most people don't care about privacy. They figure that all their data has already been breached, so why worry? I get that. I've heard this statement thousands of times. However, it has been my passion for my entire career to help consumers and organizations understand that the impacts on their lives, positive as well as negative, depend upon the context within which their personal data is used, with whom it is shared, how accurate that data is, how long it's retained, and more. A few weeks ago, I performed a high-level security and privacy assessment of the Invisaware necklace, and I did this by reviewing that business's website privacy policy and terms of use. Quite frankly, 
The information provided on those pages revealed very few security protections within the device itself or for the data. And the privacy practices as described are also really weak and not aligned with longstanding privacy standards. I wrote a fairly lengthy report about it and posted it on our Privacy and Security Brainiacs blog. So go check out all those details there if you're interested. But as just a quick overview, you have to consider the context of accessing and using the data that this smart necklace is collecting and sharing with others. Their website indicates that the that the person wearing it that their real-time GPS location is transmitted and the security protections indicate that only the stored backup data is encrypted. So this reveals the risk that the GPS transmissions would be accessible, creating the vulnerability that the wearer could be located by someone who is actually intercepting those transmissions. And it's very easy to to intercept uh, data going through wireless transmissions. If someone is traveling alone and a criminal can locate their victim using the GPS being transmitted in the clear, this intended safety protection jewelry could really quickly become a victim location tool. Many other types of risks are detailed in my blog post. I've been an expert witness for two cases involving assaults that occurred by the criminal monitoring IoT devices. These situations are increasing. Manufacturers need to strengthen the security and privacy protections within their IoT products. If you want to use the necklace's capabilities, I encourage you, contact the manufacturer and tell them that they need to strengthen their privacy practices and security protections. I've spoken to many IoT product manufacturers and the majority of them tell me that consumers do not tell them they want privacy protections and security capabilities. Therefore, the manufacturer will not spend time or resources developing them since the consumers clearly don't care. This is from the viewpoint of the manufacturers. If you want more security and control over your data, speak up. Consumers can help make change. Now, if you have more suggestions or feedback about this topic or feedback on that blog post, send me a note. Let me know. Okay, another question here. The next one. Well, this one's interesting. Do you think artificial intelligence... Oh, we're getting close to the end. Do I have a little bit shorter question? Uh, Let's see. I'll, I'll go ahead and do this one really quick. We have four minutes. So will artificial intelligence and machine learning help to reduce financial cybercrime or help to make it worse? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes to both. AI and ML, artificial intelligence, machine learning tools, they have such a wide range of algorithms and purposes, some of which will be beneficial for preventing and reducing financial cybercrime and some that will be used to commit cybercrime. So how can it reduce cybercrime? Well, 
AI tools are being used to analyze huge databases to identify anomalies and patterns that suggest cybercrime and fraudulent activities are occurring. AI-powered fraud management systems are being used to identify and prevent various payment fraud, identity theft, phishing attacks, and other criminal activities. Um, since AI and, and ML tools continuously self-adapt through use, they can learn from new types of fraud. Um, oh, and I have so many more, but I want to go down to the ones how they're using to commit financial cybercrime. So here's a few. Chat box. Chat bots are those interactive communications boxes used to provide customer service. And they're typically using AI. Well, chatbots are being used to commit phishing scams and identity theft and a whole wide range of social engineering attacks. A common crime currently being used involves cyber crooks using chatbots to impersonate customer service representatives for banks or other financial institutions. The fake financial organization chatbot then engages the targeted victim in a conversation, asking them for their personal information, such as bank account number, account password, social security number, and more. The chatbot explains quite convincingly that this is to resolve a problem or to verify the target's identity. And cyber crooks have obtained financial information and stolen just millions of dollars using this already. Oh, we're, we're running out of time. Uh, I want to make sure that uh, I let you know how to uh, get back to me with regard to the questions that I've I've talked about today. You know, I didn't get to a lot of them. I know I'll have them for another show like this. I hope you found the information interesting or useful. Did they pique your interest? Do you have additional questions you'd like? to hear me or perhaps a guest on my show answer, just send them in. I really love getting your questions and also um, hearing about your own experiences, and I may cover them in an upcoming episode or in my monthly tips or in a blog post or even one of my upcoming books. You can contact me using RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. If you cannot make our scheduled debut show each month on the first Saturday, why you will be able to listen to the recordings and you can find recordings of all my past shows on your favorite news app in addition to voiceamerica.com business channel website and also visit my youtube channel the privacy professor until our next show ask those you do business with with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them including following security practices when building in security to these types of IoT devices and AI. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.